Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. This is one of the best topics that I like talking about with people, and that is creating a sense of wonder and delight in your life. Curiosity is what makes people happy. And how do we keep curiosity alive? So that's what we're talking about today. And my first guest has has made a career out of doing such. My guest is John Levy. He has worked with countless brands and companies to support their efforts in consumer engagement, customer acquisition, and product development by applying the latest behavioral research ranging from neuroscience and psychology to economics and biology. And he's got a great new book out entitled The 2AM Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining us. Are you kidding? This is such a pleasure. We get to talk about the funnest things in the world. The bestest things in the world. Adventure. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with the topic. I'm not going to lie. Well, you know, I'm right there with you. I received an invitation yesterday, and this is no joke, from a friend of mine who asked me to go to a 6.30 a.m. Da- dance party at uh, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum in Hollywood next month. And guess what I said? Uh, I'll be there with bells on. Exactly. <laughs> so it, I'm guessing this, this, you're uh, going. Is it Daybreaker? They, it is they Daybreaker. Really fun events. Yeah, they're yes. a great company. Yes, it's Daybreaker. And yoga, the 5:30 yoga class was sold out, which was very disappointing. So here's one of these funny things. I I believe that these uh, kind of experiences are really novel and wonderful, and uh, and you should say yes to them, and then. The issue is like this long term ability to maintain something like that. Like, I'm just not the guy who can wake up to be at 5 a.m. yoga. Um, but I am the guy who like wake up once to go do almsgiving when I'm in Siem Reap, Cambodia and give the monks food. Right. So 
I, it's there's always this like funny thing in living an adventurous life between what you can attain, like what you can do, and then what's really maintainable. Yeah. But events like these that we that you, I described and you described are uh, like a booster to yes. our our happiness, right? They're like a, a like a, a little just I don't know a, a vitamin pack. Mm-hmm. So it, there's a, a funny thing. I was uh, recently speaking to my colleague Moran Surf. He's a well-known neuroscientist, and uh, a study was done about what actually causes happiness. And if you look at uh, the research, uh, do you want to guess what the what the number one thing that causes happiness is? Well, I know from my work and my research of years and years and years that it's connection. So that's actually uh, number two. Oh, well, give me number one. Uh, so here's the premise, which is if you're not worried about like where your next meal is coming from, right? So you, you've got like on Maslow's higher orders, you're like you're set on where you're sleeping and that you've, you're fed. The number one thing is actually sleep, because if you're completely drained, you can't enjoy anything. You end up really grumpy and negative. And so. If you're well rested, it gives you a context of being able to enjoy, be creative, uh, and and really engage with people. Because it's hard to enjoy the other things that were on the top of the list were uh, connection, like you said, or social interaction. Uh, if you're a person of faith, having faith uh, or participating in it, exercise and being a contribution to others, and all of these things begin to fall apart. So I. Absolutely with you. I think that there are these moments where you take on something that you're you're borrowing sleep, right? You're like tiring yourself out because the experience is so worth it. And in order to really enjoy yourself over the long term, you need to make sure that you're well rested. Well, and I think that also events like we're talking about offer a reset, right? So you do something that's out of the box. You do something crazy, that 2 a.m., you know, adventure or, you know, sunrise yoga and mm-hmm. you have euphoria from the experience. I mean, I'm sure there's a, a biological reason why these things feel so good, right? You have all these, you know, happy happy hormones racing through your body. You feel euphoric. And then at the end of the day, you sleep very peacefully and soundly. <laughs> so there's, uh, there's some interesting things that happen in the brain. First of all, uh, I, I have to point out that not everybody has the same, like, tolerance or uh, for novelty that probably we do, Lisa. Uh, The issue is that uh, some people are more introverted, they prefer quieter experiences, and that's totally fine. But even within your personal limits, when you're exposed to something that's new or different, uh, your brain responds in a few ways. One, there's a section called the SNVTA, the Substantia Niagara Ventral Tagmental Area. And what researchers found was that when you're exposed to something new or novel, this section responds proportionately and entices you to explore and understand it. We are literally hardwired to want to understand and see novelty, anything that's different or new. And as an extra element, uh, our brain responds by remembering it better. It allows for neuroplasticity. So when we're exposed to something that's new or different, we remember it more and we're enticed to explore and understand it, which is part of the reason that like you hear about these kind of wild experiences uh, it could be anything from running of the bulls to uh you know there's a nomadic uh sports festival that takes place where uh it's like the olympic games of nomads where they Ooh, do like where's that 
Uh, it's somewhere in Central Asia. I don't remember right now. But literally, like, the games involve uh, playing something like polo, but instead of hitting a ball, you you carry the body of a goat or you you uh, do horseback ridden archery so that and that these are the competitions. It's literally like nomadic challenges. And you hear about this stuff and you're like, that sounds incredible. I'd love to see that. And the reason is that we're fundamentally hardwired for it. And what's interesting is you'll you'll often begin to notice that behaviors that normally are outside of your norm uh, become options. So have you ever noticed that when you travel, you're more open to saying yes to things? Absolutely. It's the curiosity uh, bug, right? So yeah, it's definitely that. And then also because you are in a culture that has different standards, then you you it allows you to re-examine your own standards. What's normal, what isn't, and so on. Yeah. And then also that the suspension of judgment too, mm-hmm. I think, when we travel, you know, because it's unknown to us, it's unfamiliar, we 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 reserve judgment. Maybe we don't suspend it. There, there's this uh, theory that uh, I came across while writing my book uh, that suggested that when you travel, the further you are from home, the less susceptible you are to gossip and thereby the more free you are to explore. So when you're back home, if your friend sees you something doing, doing something out of the norm, then they'll tell other people. But if you go to a foreign country and make out with someone really cute, there's nobody there to judge you for it. <laughs> so all of a sudden you're like, hey there, let's have some fun. Now, that might be completely out of the norm for you, but because you're outside of the the sphere of judgment or gossip, uh, it becomes acceptable. And so it's a a great way to kind of push the boundaries of your own personality or how you see yourself uh, and give yourself the freedom to explore uh, who you are. So let me ask you a kind of a personal question. It's a good one, though. Like, how did you get get into the adventure business? I mean, what was your um, inspiration in, in your catalyst? Did you come think, from a family of like people like you or? Uh, so I will say my father is a um, is a bit of a risk taker. Right. So he's a painter and a sculptor. Uh, he had to leave home at a young age uh, and he traveled around Europe, not speaking any uh, European languages in in his younger days. Right. This was the 1960s, I believe. And uh and so he, he's one of these people that's very socially intelligent, but never traditionally book smart. Um, and so he always encouraged us to kind of go out there and, and connect with people and have wild like experiences and a, a, a broad range of, of life uh, experiences. Uh, but really, and uh, this is <laughs> kind of a silly story, uh, how every great like hero's tale is it began with uh a terrible breakup (laughs) (laughs) so so i i had a really really bad breakup and as a result to reward myself for getting through it in such a healthy way i said every month i'm going to travel to the biggest event in the world wherever it is i spent the next year jumping around between uh, Cannes Film Festival and Running of the Bulls where I actually got crushed and almost died 
to uh, Burning Man and uh, Toronto International Film Festival and everything uh, in between. And it was an incredible year. And I never stopped traveling after that. I traveled, of course, before, but never like a committed traveler. Yeah. Are you a fan of Atlas Obscura? Uh, I think it's a great product. I, uh, the person that I'm with now, I, I met on a flight and, um, for our first date, I researched all the obscure locations in New York and led a guided tour of the obscure. So it was Ah. super fun. And I kind of owe them for, uh, collecting all these really kind of crazy things. And yeah, I use them all over the world. Yeah, I, I I do too. Um, they they have been on the show, and and, and so is your friend Moran Surf. Oh so yeah, you probably you probably know that. Maybe no. you don't. <laughs> uh, he he gets uh, he gets he gets around. around. It's, yeah, it's tough <laughs> to keep track of the guy. Like I'll I literally will be one week. We'll be walking uh, the El Camino de Santiago, the pilgrimage, for like yes. a week straight, and then the next week he's off in Japan or something. So yeah. it's. It's kind of a, you know, he's a fellow adventurer. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation with my guest, John Levy. We're talking about his new book, The 2 a.m. Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure, because, hey, that's where the secret sauce of happiness lies. To learn more, please visit www.johnlevytlb.com. That's the uh, letters TLB. On Twitter, that's John Levy TLB. And on Facebook, Guess what? John Levy, TLB. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Wait just a sec. Before we take that break, I want to chat with you about one of my favorite passions, and that is yoga. I've been practicing yoga for nearly 20 years. Yoga is my go-to activity for a sound mind, body, and spirit. Yoga is also my personal antidepressant. But the challenge is finding the time to do yoga with a busy schedule that includes international travel. Luckily, our proud sponsor, Yoga International, has solved that dilemma with more than 1,500 of the best yoga classes, courses, and challenges available on demand and on the go. So whether you are just starting out or a seasoned yogi, you can find a great class from the comfort and convenience of wherever you are, 24-7 on any digital device. Yoga International is an affordable and growing online community of more than 300,000 members that serves all levels and abilities. Classes are portable, fit your schedule, and less expensive and way more convenient than traditional studios. So come join me on the mat to practice, learn, and be inspired by a variety of styles, including vinyasa, hatha, yoga for beginners, restorative kundalini, and yin. And here's the best part. Listeners of Harvesting Happiness can learn and practice with some of the best yoga teachers in the world right now for free. Yep, that's right, free. Yoga International is gifting a free 30-day trial membership at yogainternational.com slash happiness. So grab your mat and get your 30-day free trial at yogainternational.com slash happiness. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? 
Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are on an adventure with John Levy, who is a behavior scientist, consultant, and writer. We're talking about his new book, The 2 a.m. Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. So, John, you said that you came from a, a father who was quite an adventurer, and that is, and the uh, mending the wounds of a broken heart is how mm-hmm. you really got started. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's for sure. I think we've all been there. We're, uh, oh, yes. We, we need a catalyst for change, and we then take on something audacious. Some, you know, I, I think the classic example is um, women I know cut their hair after a big breakup and uh, get styled differently. I said, I'm going to travel around the world and potentially risk my life. So, Oh, yeah, uh, that's, there you go. Yeah, listen, yeah. <laughs> everybody's got to have a thing. Talk about the one drink hypothesis. Oh, sure. <laughs> so uh, I, over the years, a lot of my uh, friends would be like, oh, yeah, we should get together. Let's have I can have one drink and then I really have to go. And I noticed that whenever they said that, inevitably, four drinks later, we'd be just doing something completely insane uh, somewhere in the city and or wherever we were. And uh, and the perfect example of this was one day I got a call from my brother, Amnon, and he said, hey, I'm. I just finished all my meetings. I'm in town for New York, uh, in, in New York for the night. Um, but I have to leave at, on a 6 a.m. flight, so I have to leave at 3 a.m. So I can only have one drink and then I have to go. And I said, listen, Amnon, you can fool yourself. I've never known anybody to have one drink and then go. It sounds like you want to have an excuse to be uh, irresponsible. So inevitably, I go and meet him. He's like, no, 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 it's going to be one drink. One drink turns into three drinks. Three drinks turns into bar hopping across the city. Uh, That turns into uh, saying, oh, maybe you should go to a nightclub. And he's like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We get online. And as we do, I I see a familiar figure. (coughs) And I grab Amnon out of line. I said, just play along. And we... (laughs) Going to dive into this uh, closed restaurant bar that um, I saw the guy walk into, and they're like, "Sorry, we're closed." And I go, "Kiefer, is that you?" And uh, there was Kiefer Sutherland sitting at the bar, and he's like, he waves me. I said, "Oh, I haven't seen you since that time we were drinking together at the Spotted Pig," <laughs> and uh, and he waves me in, and I sit down, and it's Kiefer's friend, Kiefer, me, and my brother, and uh, we start grabbing drinks and chatting. 
And there's no chance Kiefer would ever remember me. We shared like half a drink together, uh, but he was a gentleman. And then the bar staff says, you know, you're going to be here after hours. You have to participate in our tradition. And they start pulling something from behind the bar. And all I could think is like, oh, my God, this is going to be like piles of drugs. Like, I don't do drugs. There's a celebrity <laughs> here. It's like way after hours. I don't even know what to make sense of this world. What am I going to do? And they pull out something way worse. They pull out a box of Jenga. And we were <laughs> a drunken pile of human beings, so uncoordinated and completely unfit to be playing Jenga. We spend the next three hours battling it out and drinking. Uh, and by three o'clock in the morning, my brother's like, I got to get to my flight. Uh, Kiefer at this point had like passed around his glasses to, to uh, uh, like play with the Jenga. And he has these thick Coke bottle glasses and we exchange numbers and he invites us to Thanksgiving dinner because it's the week before Thanksgiving and uh, we invite him to ours. And, uh, and my brother leaves and I leave with him. The next morning I realized I'd unintentionally stolen Kiefer's glasses. And so I felt terrible. So the next week when my brother was back in town for Thanksgiving, uh, we actually showed up at his Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> he looked at me like, who are you? Um, and I, you know, gave him the glasses. I was like, sorry, I accidentally took this when we were hanging out last week. And he was such a gentleman and he, uh, let us all, uh, join him. And we ended up spending the next two hours playing Jenga with his kids, which was such a random experience. But uh, it really led me to think like this whole idea of just having one drink doesn't really exist. Like it's really an excuse to to go do something wild. Well, it's and the appetizer. It's the opener, hopefully, yeah. to something greater. So uh, now when I want to have a crazy night, I'll say, OK, I'll have one drink. And people know that it, they're in trouble. Hilarious. What about those who might be fearful, timid, um, maybe a little bit introverted, like you had mentioned earlier, that uh, might not be apt to go on the adventure roller coaster like we're talking about, but ways that you can suggest they open up their lives to a little bit more zest? Sure. So I think the key here is in being respectful of the fact that you have uh, introverted personality if you do uh, in American culture we really value like the large personality that's not necessarily true for Far Eastern cultures right so if in uh, a lot of other cultures the more quiet you are you're viewed as more wise uh, and so uh, the first thing is you got to give yourself some slack if you're just not built for being really loud then don't feel obligated to do that what I've found as far as what defines an adventure is that it's an experience that is one exciting and remarkable, right? It's, it's worth talking about. If it's not remarkable, it's not culturally significant in general Two, yeah. it possesses adversity and or risk. And here's the important part, preferably perceived risk, right? So going, uh, skydiving is very safe. Going to climb Everest, very dangerous, but your body m will likely react in very similar ways because you're overcoming a challenge that's uncomfortable. And the third is it brings about growth. The person you are at the end is distinct from the person who started. So yeah. if we look at, uh, even if you're an introvert, the key is you don't have to do something crazy. You just have to find something that's just outside your comfort zone. That could be talking to a stranger, or it could be uh, singing karaoke with a group. 
for you, that could be that, that thing that's just at the edge of what you feel comfortable with and lets you grow. And so uh, that's what I really encourage. Yeah, I, I do too, you know, because I find that that is, um, that is where that growth lies. When you place yourself at the edge of comfort and discomfort and that, that you know, slightly out of the box Whereas the, there's that novel element, oh, I've not done this before. So you get into that state of curiosity and wonder. So you temporarily suspend the judgment, which allows you to absorb what's happening, which then uh, creates the memory, right? Which mm -hmm. then elevates happiness. Mm -hmm. So if you look at research by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who's uh, the father of this concept called flow state. Yep. What he, uh, flow state is this peak state of human performance is athletes talk about entering flow when they're competing at times or uh, artists when they spend hours on a piece and it feels like minutes have passed. And it, it's this state where there's an intrinsic ecstasy from participation. Uh, you don't know where you end and the activity begins. You feel like you're intertwined. Your entire sense of, of, time and space kind of shifts, right? So things that happen in a split second feel like it, you could be throwing a basketball or something along those lines, and you would see every face in the crowd, which seems crazy because it happens in literally a fraction of a second. But in order to enter this state of flow, there's a series of characteristics that uh, need to be put in place. And among them, are the fact that you need to be doing something that requires uh, that requires skill, but it's not so far outside of your skill set that you're constantly failing because then you become self-conscious. And it's not so easy that you're bored. And so I think that this is exactly what you're pointing to, which is in order to be able to enter the state of peak human performance or engagement, um, self-consciousness disappears and it disappears because you're so intertwined in the activity because it's just at the edge of what you know yourself capable to do. Yeah. You know, and the word pops in my mind as you're speaking and it is one of my favorite words and that is rapture. You know, when one is in that state of rapture, like full consumption of the moment, time and space are suspended and there's this euphoria or pleasure of just being immersed in, in whatever it is that we're doing. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And, and I think that one of the nice things about adventure or being adventurous is that I'm never going to have the skill set of an Olympic medalist. Right? It's just too late for me. Uh, but I can do something that's outside of my comfort zone socially or physically that doesn't require me to dedicate 20 years of my life to the mastery of a skill because yeah. I've already spent 20 years trying to master or more than that. I'm older than that, uh, myself. And so, <laughs> uh, being me is something I have a lot of experience in. And so that is something I can push. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it doesn't have to be, like you said, in very big ways. It has to just be in ways that grab our attention. That's the other thing. You know, when we find ourselves in a rut, 
and we're saying, oh, we're not unhappy, we're tired, we're overworked. Well, first of all, we should aim to get more sleep, which is where we started this conversation. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, sometimes that's not possible. But these other things may be more possible. Yeah, I mean, the your next adventure is only as far as the person nearest you. You know, it's it, it's super simple. You, the if if I were to reduce living an adventurous life um, down to a, the basics, it's the willingness to say yes and be uncomfortable. So if you're uncomfortable, you're in luck. Yeah. You're, oh, yes. Yes. Ju just say yes to life and it's going to pretty much work out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so, from experience, I'd be a little bit careful around bulls because I almost died at running of the bulls and got crushed. But other than that... Uh, yes, say yes to everything. Yeah, well, that, that's that's intense, you know, and, and, and it does happen every summer, right? People are mm -hmm. are injured. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it definitely happens. And it goes way underreported. But it's that's why I say there's plenty of things that you can do that are equally as exhilarating and perfectly safe. What's your next adventure? Oh, wow. Uh, that's a great question. I'm working on a project uh, for next year where every couple of months I'm going to learn a new superhuman skill. So I started it, <laughs> which was uh, I learned free diving, where you hold your breath for crazy long periods of time underwater and swim around. I want to learn Wim Hof, which is a uh, like a, you protect your body from cold so you can like jump into an ice bath and be unaffected um, or wow. walk around, go hiking on a mountain without I mean, just like shorts and, and sandals. Uh, so there's all these kind of crazy things that you can do to push your body. And this year I'm, I'm focusing on repairing my body. And then next year I'm focusing, I guess, on breaking it again. So, Wow. Uh, well, that actually sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say this. It's not fun. Uh, and it's incredible. Yeah. Well, that pushes the envelope, right? Yeah, for sure. And, 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 the, and there's the happy spot. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the satisfaction of getting to to push yourself like that, uh, there's nothing like it. Thank you, John Levy, for being with us today. The book we've been talking about is The 2 a.m. Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. To learn more about John's work, please visit www.johnlevytlb.com, on Twitter at JohnLevyTLB, and on Facebook, the page is the same, John Levy TLB. John, thanks for hanging out with me. Are you kidding? This was such a treat. Thank you, yeah, Lisa, for being likewise. a fellow adventure. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain... Happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. 
Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast with your friends and loved ones because we're talking about finding your flow, why wanderlust and wonder creates happiness. My next guest has been writing extensively about this, and I want to welcome Mike Rucker, PhD. Dr. Mike Rucker has a two-decade career, including two C-level tenures and a portfolio of industry accolades for various enterprise-level achievements. Last year, Mike received his PhD in organizational psychology. He's also a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association, as well as a member of the American Psychological Association, and is accredited by the American College of Sports Medicine and a peer-reviewed author. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having, having me. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, I, and what fun. We get, yeah, to talk, yeah. we get to talk about fun. For, yeah, yeah, this is going to be a good one. This is good. Let's <laughs> talk about why fun connects so obviously, actually, um, to happiness. But what is the relationship? Yeah, so where happiness as a social construct is you know, now become com you know, somewhat complex, having fun at its core is, is simply an activity and, and fairly easy to execute. So the standard definition of fun suggests some overlap with the concept of play. Uh, these two words are often mentioned together, for example, fun and games. But, you know, fun is more specific to experiencing enjoyment. I guess you could say fun is sort of a natural byproduct of play, but also a byproduct of all sorts of different things. So um, Dr. Stuart Brown, who's a founder of the National Institute of Play and has a TED talk on the subject, actually defines play as a state of mind rather than activity. So in, in that sense, play is thought of as a purposeless activity or hopefully fun as a social and academic construct, you know, transcends this idea of play. Um, and fun is also generally associated with flow states too, which are obviously important to happiness. But let, often... Let, wait, yeah. Hang on one second. Let's just define flow state for people because we have all experienced it, but might not necessarily connect with the, the name. Yeah. So flow is this idea of when we're highly engaged in something, right? So there's, you know, an, this idea of selflessness and timelessness that comes with flow when you're in deep engagement, but flow can, um, you know, once you're highly engaged in that activity can be something like work and kind of, you know, someone that's doing deliberate practice, for instance, and, and looking for mastery can find flow within that, but might not necessarily look back at that instance and think it was extremely fun, um, but can, you know, so there's some differences between that, but generally, um, especially someone that's highly engaged in a particular activity, um, would look at flow as fun. Although the, again, those two constructs do have nuances. Did that answer your question? It does. And I, I think it's also important to, 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 to share about flow that there is this state of, 
you know, in my own case, when I experience it, sort of rapture, um, complete uh, elevation, even though it might not necessarily, as you say, necessarily be a fun activity. You're sort of in it. And and I, I when I have it, I feel like, okay, this is the only minute that matters. Yeah, no, I agree. I think flow's interesting in the sense that, um, you know, it's certainly become a hot topic um, because I think, you know, depending on the practitioner that you um, speak with, you know, some people feel like it's a lot more achievable than what we're seeing in academic research. I, you know, obviously the grandfather of flow is, is Csikszentmihalyi. Um, and I think if you talked with someone like him, these moments are fairly fleeting. And as we get closer to mastery, you can manifest them more often. But certainly I wholeheartedly agree with you that um, they are something to to strive for because in those moments we get a lot more engaged and things like purpose um, and uh, and meaning sort of come to light because of this estasis um, that we're able to manifest through um, things like flow. The issue with flow is that it really, you know, there it does take some deliberate practice to be able to get there um, where fun can sort of be designed and maybe be, uh, you know, a precursor to flow. Um, Let's let's talk a little. Yeah, that that makes great sense. Let's talk a, a bit about this fun state. Then you know, if 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 flow maybe is the is the ultimate goal and it requires the work, and and fun is something that we can experience along the way as adults or as we age, we tend to have less fun in our lives. Life becomes more serious, and we lose that we lose that that playful edge. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think. You know, I'm in my 40s now. I'm a parent. And unfortunately, the simple truth is that once parenthood hits, it gets more difficult to have fun. I mean, the research there is fairly clear. Anyone familiar with Dan Gilbert's work, um, if someone's happened to read Stumbling on Happiness, um, he goes into depth, you know, the data that suggests that, um, you know, as we, you know, speaking of selfless, right, but once we start to become caregivers for others, um, that, uh doesn't open up um, a lot of space for that, that for fun to happen. Um, Not without planning. Yeah, exactly. And it's also harder to make friends, right, as we get older, which is also an important part for fun to happen. There's a really good 2012 New York Times article by Alex Williams where he examines this topic of, you know, our ability to maintain friendships as an adult. Um, you know, he indicates there's three conditions that need to be you fulfilled proximity, repeated, excuse me, repeated unplanned interactions um, and settings that encourage interactions that can be confidential because, you know, as we know, disclosure is a big part of being able to develop bonds and friendship. And unfortunately, as we get older, these conditions are often difficult to fulfill once we have a job, you know, or a partner and a family. And so when we get older, we have to work harder. You alluded to this to create that space and be more deliberate about scheduling fun into our lives. So how can we as adults increase the fun in our lives, and especially for the parents out there? I mean, I'm a, I'm a parent as well, and I've noticed that as the demands have become higher, the fun quotient has gone down. But now that I'm at, I have one child in college and the other one who will be graduating next year, I'm seeing an uptick. I'm seeing some light here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. I think, you know, there's some, definitely some strategies Um you know, uh, for folks with younger kids, you know, you don't want to make play your duty 
And, you know, we talked about the interrelationship with fun and play. So don't make play your duty. I think, uh, you know, for us with younger kids, um, when you play out of a sense of obligation, play should, uh, you know, that it's just not going to be fun. Play should be fun for everyone involved or otherwise it's not play. You know, um, obviously our interests, energy and humor are going to be different often than our children, especially small children. And this makes it difficult to bridge the age gap in parent-child play. But if you get creative, it's not really that hard. You know, for me, I have a five-year-old um, and she has a gambit of different um, activities that she likes to do. So I look for common ground. And ultimately, I found that we both enjoyed rock climbing. Um, and so now we engage in that activity and we both have a lot of fun. And it's not like I'm sitting around watching Frozen for the, the 20th time. Um, <laughs> And then I think an important component that a lot of people often, you know, overlook just because we get way too um, serious as we age is to not take life too seriously, um, especially as adults. There's inherent fun and in getting silly and laughing, especially when you do this with others, your children or, you know, adults without friends. Um, you know, if you laugh and, and hug with each other, you know, we know that that releases oxytocin which, you know, in turn creates strong bonds with each other and, and leads to greater well-being and, and a stronger sense of happiness. Um, and so that's important. And then lastly, you know, um, rituals is an important component of, uh, of putting, um, being able to interject fun. I think once you can develop rituals, especially on the weekends, um, you know, the recognition that routine is important for well-being is well-established. And weekends were made for a reason. So if you can, you know, instead of just letting weekends kind of go by uh, weekend after weekend, um, organizing stuff um, around weekends can uh, make fun rituals part of our lives and and almost by proxy, right, a forcing factor, uh, and, you know, create more fun. Let's... um. To talk a little bit more about this, uh, some strategies for fun because there's one that I, I love to use with uh, adults that I you know I see in, in 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 private practice and even in workshops, bubbles. This has become my go-to fun adult toy because there's not a person on the planet that when you offer them a little you know vial of bubbles that doesn't smile and immediately they cannot wait you know uh, d dive into the bubbles and start blowing. I love it. You know, yeah, it's cheap. <laughs> no, I, I think that's right. And I, you know, that kind of alludes to, you know, the last thing I would touch on, which has become a bit clash, uh, cliche, but, you know, people really should in, invest in experience, not things. There was a great um, article in The Atlantic in, in 2014, you know, by experiences, not things, right? And I yes. think, bubble, you know, that as you alluded to, um, you know, Investing in experience over things builds memories that you can relish. And uh, uh, people that are familiar with Marty Seglman's work on um, happiness, that relishing um, in things that we had fun and great experiences is a great way to build resilience and protect our happiness. Uh, you know, tangible things, uh, novelties are fleeting. Uh, these, you know, uh, things that we purchase have marginal value. And paradoxically, can often lead to regret and actually reduce our happiness. I feel like most people know this by now, but it's always a good reminder that, um, you know, when we invest in experiences and um, 
have experiences and, and don't just simply buy things is another great way to have fun, but also um, increase the utility of fun. There's one more thing that brings great fun, and some of our listeners may wince when I share this. I come from a family of board game players, and as I was growing up in my teenage years, I was embarrassed by this. I thought, oh my God, like who are these people that like to sit around and play board games? As a person in midlife, I love sitting around with my family playing board games now. It's yes. so silly, like Cards Against Humanity. I don't know if you've ever played it, but oh, it's, of course, it's an amazing game. Yeah, amazing <laughs> game, and 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 we play it. The whole family plays it. So we've got you know young people in their teens, up to the oldsters, the grandparents, and the one who always wins is my dad, who's in his late seventies. He's the most creative, by <laughs> far. It was funny. A quick anecdote, um, especially in the spirit of having fun. I was looking on Amazon. And uh, in the FAQ there, they said, does Canada have a version of um, Cards Against Humanity? And the answer was, yes, it's called Apples to Apples. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to carry on the conversation with Michael Rucker. And we're talking about purposeful fun, the altruistic benefits of play. To learn more, please visit michaelrucker.com, on Twitter at Perform Better, and on Facebook, Mike period Rucker period PhD. Here comes the break. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because it's kind, it's free, it's legal. Sharing is most definitely caring. And we're talking about something that most adults out there would find interesting, and that is purposeful fun, the altruistic benefits of play. The more we age, the less we play, and that impedes our happiness. So in the studio today with me is Dr. Mike Rucker, who is a researcher, author, 
he's done lots of different things, but he's working on a project about daring. But right now we're talking more about fun. And back to, Mike, how this translates, how board games, for example, or team building games and exercises really touch upon um, productivity as well. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously the um, intertanglement of fun and engagement are important aspects. Um, one of the things that uh, has been important in the workplace with regards to fun, um, you know, is is part and parcel with what you mentioned with board games is that if we can make arduous tasks um, more entertaining, then often, um, you know, we can see productivity go up. And I think all of that sort of ties into this idea of ego depletion. Um, you know, anything that ends up being a stressor where we feel like we have less autonomy ultimately ends um, in workplace stress. And so as we increase fun and are able to make activities that are, um, you know, generally thought of as um, not fun, um, we can increase one's ability to engage in that. So, you know, you reduce psychological stress, you increase aptitude, because again, we've been talking about flow. If you can reach into those moments where you are timeless and selfless, um, we tend to get more things done. And you're also just able to do deeper work. I think as you know, Americans move from more heuristic work to algorithmic work. Um, these ideas of fun and play and intertwining those into our personal lives and workplace are going to be important social constructs to continue to evolve um, just because heuristic work, you know, is a lot more, uh, uh, there's a lot more cognitive load uh, with that type of work than work that um, our predecessors have done in the past. Um, is it important to play every day? I think so. Uh, you know, we all need renewal, right? And so at the end of the day, if we don't, um, you know, again, we've made a distinction between play and fun and play tends to, uh, you know, have the fun component through purposeless activity. And so one of those things, you know, the reason for play is that we're able to let our guard down um, and it's sort of, you know, it's an apples to oranges comparison, but a lot of what we know about mindfulness is that ability to clear, cleanse the palate, right? We basically are able to wind down the monkey brain, um, you know, and, and these sort of reoccurring loops in our head that oftentimes lead to anxiety. And what play allows us to do is sort of short circuit those because we're engaging in mindless activity um, that basically you know, crowds out um, more anxiety-inducing thoughts and things of that nature. So if you can incorporate play into your life, especially, you know, again, tying back into um, meaningful play with, um, uh, for folks like myself that have children, um, that can be an important component of renewal in everyday life. And playing with animals. I mean, that's another way for people that don't have young kids uh, handy. <laughs> you could, you know, just going out and playing with your dog or playing with your cat or any other animal that you might have, I think also um, breeds this kind of feeling that we're talking about. What about having too much fun? Can yeah. we have too much fun? <laughs> uh, definitely. Um, so, you know, I think that there is some cautionary tales here. Um, unfortunately, it's not uncommon for things that are initially described as fun to turn into addictions. 
um, and then extremes, uh, pathological obsessions, right? Uh, for instance, neuroscience has shown us that the brain structure changes in people who obsessively play video games but are not yet considered addicts, you know, by an academic sense. So in these individuals, the volume of the player's gray matter increases in the area of the brain associated with pleasure and addiction. Um, this region of our brain is also known for being rich in dopamine, the feel-good neurotransmitter, and is, you know, connected with the pursuit of desired experiences. Considering the role of dopamine, I'm sure you've talked about dopamine in the past. I mean, some of oh dopamine. yeah, dope, <laughs> we, we yeah of course we love we love to talk about dopamine on this show. <laughs> well, everybody I, loves dopamine. Come on. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, and you know, it's interesting because I want to stay out of the fray of that, but it you know, there's a lot of debate about its importance. You know, neurotransmitters in general. We could have a whole podcast on that. And the interesting thing is, pleasure is is biochemical, right? But fun and play and a lot of things that we've talked about, again, are social constructs. Um, you know, for instance, uh, some people think fun is extremely, or excuse me, that something like shopping is extremely fun, where I would find the util utilitarian value in something like shopping, but, um, you know, I don't think it's fun at all. So it, it's very much a social construct. Um, and, but, getting back to dopamine it's not difficult to understand that addictive behaviors that release dopamine where we feel biological pleasure can evolve out of initially pleasurable and fun experiences and then end up being not healthy so having fun in a healthy manner is rewarding um, and the allure of fun can motivate us and at the onset you know make us dare big and pursue worthy goals but it definitely can have a downside um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about quote unquote behavioral addictions now, um, and these have been widely recognized as non-substance abuse addictions. Um, they can develop with or without substance addictions, but neuroimaging techniques and recent research shows that it's not just alcohol and recreational drugs that are causing us to be addicts, but, you know, behavioral addictions trigger the same fundamental responses in our body, like something you know, as, as crazy as cocaine that releases all that dopamine. So we can really, if we get um, too deep, you know, and, and something sort of transcends fun and becomes addictive, it very much can get, um, get in the way. Well, you know, uh, it, this is funny you mentioned this because we all have something in our pockets or our purses or in our hands that has the ability to uh, supply us with great fun, great pleasure, playful, and is wildly addictive. And that is our smartphones. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, you know, and, and that's interesting in its own. Uh, a, a buddy of mine, Nir Ayal, has, has studied that um, at length. And then I know you had mentioned Chip Conley was on on the show previously. And we've discussed things like that as well. I mean, if you have anything um, that sort of a, allows for escapism, um, you know, in Chip's case, you know, because he's a festival goer, it would be that type of stuff. With Nier, it would be, you know, stuff like smartphones. But if you're looking for something, you need to vacate something in some manner by going back to the source, whether it be a smartphone or a festival or gambling, you know, which is a more documented um, uh, addiction you need to ask yourself, you know, what can I do in my normal life to make it better? Again, if you're using fun for escapism, 
uh, you know, it can be really bad news. So uh, you really need to do some deeper work if you're finding that what you were initially doing for fun um, is just not fun anymore. And I see that in my space. You know, you had mentioned, you know, in my day job, I work for Active Wellness, which is a, a fitness delivery company. And oftentimes something like fitness can become an addiction. So what started as a very healthy endeavor to get someone, you know, back into physical well-being ends up being psychologically damaging because they become addicted to it. Um, you know, and anecdotally, even for myself, I was, I, I think one could argue that I had an addiction to long distance running. Um, and, you know, it, and I've had to back off just for various aspects. Um, yeah, I, well, this, this, this addiction, besides traditional substance abuse, I think this is one of the greatest challenges that we're going to have sociologically in years to come, because all of our brains have been changed by these smartphones. Yes, technology is amazing. The connectivity in real time with anybody anywhere around the world is truly amazing. But we have a hard time putting these things down. No, I agree. As modern life becomes more and more stressful and demanding, and as t as you mentioned, as we're making um, through the enabling of technology, we're able to make products um, more addictive. There's a whole new level of mind programming going on, facilitated by things like social media. That you know, we all know. You go on Twitter or Facebook, and someone's commented or liked something. You know, you get that dopamine release, right? Circle back on dopamine. Um, yes, yes, but I don't know if you saw on 60 Minutes, um, they repeated it twice, One about once about three weeks ago, and it was initially broadcast about two months ago, that a segment was called Brain Hacking, talking um, about how software developers, how these um, application people are brain hacking us. I mean, they're actually designing programs and software that will tap into the uh, part of the brain, the pleasure center, to get us hooked. No, yeah, I'm aware of that. Um, and certainly there's a, again, I think, um, you know, the work in Near IAL through the Habit Summit, um, there are practitioners like myself that are using those type of game mechanics for good, you know, mm -hmm. trying to figure out what those triggers are um, to create habit loops to get people um, to do, you know, to to engage in worthy pursuits or do, you know, positive activities, but certainly what's alluded in that program and, and other thought pieces on it, there's a lot of people doing that for um, nefarious reasons. And, uh, and it, you know, we're, there's a whole new generation of pleasure seekers that have emerged to your point because they have this type of access. And as you alluded to, they're not necessarily having fun. Um, they're, no. redlining, they're redlining their psyche. Uh, there's a great book that came out, Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel just wrote this book called Stealing Fire. Um, and I think in it, they estimated that we spend over $4 trillion on various types of escapism, you know, whether it's, you know, as things as, as perverse as online porn or um, smartphone applications or, you know, uh, again, uh, illicit drug use. Um, yeah, I'm at $4 trillion on this type of stuff. So, yeah, you know. Addiction to fun or, you know, any sort of escapism. Uh, yeah, you're right. Th these are things that we need to stay on top of and are going to become um, uh, are going to become big issues here in the future. Um, Let's um, we're almost out of time. And I want to make sure that we touch upon the book that you are working on now about daring. Talk a little bit about that and then we're going to need to dash. OK, 
Yeah, so um, again, you know, in conjunction with fun and these ideas of, of flow, um, you, as I continue to learn and share ideas, as you are as well, um, and actually Chip was a big influence on this, uh, Avery, Abraham Maslow's additional hierarchy of transcendence keeps coming up. And so I've been looking at this in context of other things that interest me. And Maslow describes peak experiences as moments of intense happiness and well-being um, that can lead to transformation. So when we compare these um, peaks, uh, you know, research shows us that they're more likely to happen for those that don't have dogmatic ideologies, that instead of having an existing framework to sort of you know, come up with what transcendence means to you, um, people that are able to manifest more experience um, and kind of rise up Maslow's triangle in a more organic way are uh, have a higher proclivity to being able to reach this um, selflessness state of transcendence. Um, and I believe that few of us have peak experiences for a variety of reasons, which is unfortunate because these experiences often help us find purpose and meaning in our lives. You know, Aristotle wrote that happiness is the ultimate goal. He called it eudaimonia, which has been translated to human nourishing or, or doing things well. And so, it, you know, kind of tying everything that we've talked about today in today's podcast, um, I, you know, I. I really want to help people design lives where they can add these peak experiences in because I think it's, you know, transcendence is going to be a sort of important way to uh, get above the fray of all this information um, of all these things that are hacking our brains so that we can kind of figure things out for ourselves. Um, and so that's what interests me in that. And that's the book that I'm working on. Well, you're going to come back when that book is out, and we're going to talk more about it. To learn more about the work of Dr. Mark, uh, uh, make a note there, Karina. To learn more about the work of Dr. Mike Rucker, please visit him at www.michaelrucker.com. On Twitter, you can find Mike Rucker at Perform Better, and on Facebook, Mike period Rucker period PhD. Mike, thanks so much for hanging out with me. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having me. It was incredible. And uh, look forward to coming back. <laughs> Pleasure. All right. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, John Levy and Mike Rucker, PhD, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. 
To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.